This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Pear, welcome back to the Human Action Podcast. Hey, it's good to be back. So the topic for today's episode is your new publication in the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics, which is a response to Ray, spelled W-R-A-Y, and Kelton, uh, specifically on one of the issues that's near and dear to the heart of MMT economists, namely, uh, does currency derive its purchasing power because people have to use it to pay taxes? So I will... Stop my preamble here and turn over to you, Perry. Do you want to explain, like, how did you get it sucked into this controversy? Well, like everything nowadays, it's Twitter. So I, mm-hmm. I commented on Stephanie Kelton. Uh, it's a year ago now. It's June 2022. Uh, she said something, as they usually do. I mean, they, they refer to chartalism, uh, which is basically that, well, the government's money has purchasing power and really has value and uses – and is used as money because we have to use them to pay taxes. And they don't go any further than that. They just make that claim and then that's it. And then that's that's why government should issue money too, uh, usually. And uh, and then from there on, they, they just uh, argue that, well, the government can buy whatever they like and they can – they can have – run whatever deficits they like and, and whatnot else because it's their money, right? So I, I commented on – on her claim, and she actually responded, which was surprising. Uh, there were a bunch of others responding too, of course, but she responded, and we had a little, very brief back and forth uh, in which she basically just closed the door, I, I guess you could say, at the end. And for first, she referred to a piece, um, another piece, but then she referred to the rape piece, and she said, find the hole in the rape piece. Uh, and then she said, I'll wait. Please cite page numbers and quotes. So I, of course, felt that I had to read that Ray piece. Uh, and I, I thought it was pretty easy to find holes in this argument because mm-hmm. uh, even the argument itself is not consistent and his examples don't really support what he's trying to claim. So it, 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 wasn't, a, it wasn't much of a burden to, <laughs> to critique it, to put it that way. And I realized when I read it that this, this is going to be hard to do in, on Twitter in 280 characters, even if I make a thread out of it, there's so much I want to say. So I talked to the editor of the QJAE and basically got a permission to use the Twitter thread and the Twitter challenge as motivation for writing the article. And so I went ahead and, and wrote it and it passed through peer review as all articles in the QJ do. And now it is forthcoming. So now I'm I'm hoping for either Kelton to respond since she's the one who posted the challenge, or Ray to respond since he's the one who wrote the original article that she referred to. And but so far there's been only silence. So yeah, maybe just to bring the listeners up to speed so they understand what it was with which you were grappling. Let me play devil's advocate for a bit of this, and you know, and I'll present what I took to be there. And by the way, Pear, just so you know, I this is something that I've banged my head against the wall with um, also and like in my efforts to argue with the MMT folks. So this is something that, and that's why I was very interested when you, when I saw your paper on the topic, cause I want to go look and see, and, and you did come up with a couple of objections that hadn't occurred to me. So we want, I want to get into those as this progresses, but just for 
the listeners so they understand what the heck we're even talking about. So the MMTers, what they'll often do is like turn things on their head. And that's why I think it's so attractive to people is because it looks like, oh, wow, this is fresh, brand new thinking. So, for example, it's pretty standard for people to say, oh, the the government, um, you know, if the government wants to spend money, well, then it has to go out and tax in order to raise the funds to afford these programs. So, yeah, if you want Social Security, if you want the government to build a bridge, if you want food stamps for hungry people, okay, but you got to be willing to pay your taxes to support the government because otherwise how are they going to – and the MMT camp flips it around and they say, no, no, no. Because at least for governments like the United States that issue you know their own sovereign currency, and if they don't have debts that are denominated in other currencies, then they can issue whatever they want. It's like it's like monopoly. It's like the banker in monopoly. Like they just you know, or or a referee in a sports game. It's not if the referee says, "Yep, they scored a touchdown, six points." That there's some bucket of points that's now six lower. Though the referee can just create an infinite number of points given the rules of the game. So they're saying likewise here. In the United States context, the U.S. government can create more dollars or the U.S. plus the Federal Reserve System to them. They just view it as a, a, a whole entity. And so it's the other way around that in order for people to be able to pay taxes, they would need U.S. dollars because that's how you pay your taxes is with U.S. dollars. And so they flip it. They say government needs to spend the dollars into existence. Like that's how it, the, the dollars get into the hands of the public in the first place. So then they can afford to pay taxes. So they kind of just flip it upside down. And so the, you know, what's the what's the the, the motivation for doing all this, or what's the punchline? Is that allows the MMT people to say, when times are tough, we don't need to cut government spending because then no one's going to be able to pay their taxes anymore. Like, of course we got to spend. So they try to like make it that the government spending is doing everybody a favor. As opposed to like the normal, you know, fiscal hawk position of which the Austrians, you know, can be members of that camp is to say, oh, man, you know, the government needs to really cut back on spending because, hey, times are tough. Private households, they're cutting back. So the government should, too, instead of running these profligate deficits and the MMT people want to say, no, government deficits help the private sector. It, it, it pumps funds in there. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. But so what's. First of all, is that your understanding? Like, do you think that I'm capturing like where they're coming from and why they why they think it's even worth arguing about this? Yeah, I think that's accurate. And I've heard Kelton say, and he had a, a TED talk uh, where she argued that if the if the government does not spend money into existence, which basically means that the government creates new money and it it buys resources from businesses, then entrepreneurs can't make profits. And that's one of those things that as an entrepreneurship scholar, I was like, what the heck is this? <clears throat> but what, what she means is it's sort of a deepity in the sense of saying that, well, if money is only what the government calls money, then the government – and the government is the only one who can create this money. Then, of course, the government has to create the money in which entrepreneurs' profits are counted. But that doesn't make any sense because you're assuming so much. That of course, of course, entrepreneurs can make profits without government money. That that has nothing to do with it, right? But from their perspective, I mean, it all starts with the government, and then the, the economy has money because the government creates money and offers money to people, and people use this money because they need this money to pay taxes. So people value it. That's the way they put it. But it's really people demand dollars, not because dollars were already money, but because they need to pay taxes. 
And the problem there that, that I jumped on in, in Twitter threaders really that they say that, well, we need dollars to pay taxes, which not necessarily true, at least not at, at all times. But then they assume that because we need dollars to pay taxes on tax day, we also will use the same tokens in all our trades. Now, that doesn't follow. It doesn't follow that if I have to pay 30% of my income in taxes in dollars, it doesn't mean that I have to earn that income in dollars. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that I have to use dollars when I buy groceries. It doesn't mean that I have to save in dollars. I don't have to use dollars for anything at all. All I need to do is have enough dollars when I have to pay the taxes. Right? So, so they're, they're taking this uh, an extra step, a, a big leap really, that is unsupported. They're just assuming that because I pay taxes, I want to use the same tokens for every transaction always. But that doesn't follow. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me just jump again because I want to make sure we're not losing people at ground zero here. So again, folks, what pairs grappling with is this position or this perspective saying, how is it that the MMT camp, like their big picture view of the world, why is it that you look around and oh, people in Japan are using yen and people in Europe are using the euro and people in the United States are using U.S. dollars? Why is that? What what what's cause what's what's underpinning this whole system? Why are they using those? items as currency and not something else. And, and the MMT standard answer is, oh, because the governments basically dictate what the currency is going to be because they say when you go to pay your taxes every year, you have to give us these, you know, it's denominated in this particular currency. And if you don't give it to us, you know, we're going to punish you. Ultimately, we'll throw you in a cage. And so that's why, so then, you know, from, from there, was like, that's why when the government creates the money de novo and wants to spend it on fighter jets or uh, you know, social security payment. Like, wh why is it that the the people in the private sector are anxious to get these so-called dollars? What do they care? Well, because they know, oh, come April fifteenth, I have to hand over a, a pile of these things, or else I get thrown in a cage. And so that's why I would be willing to work my butt off or to sell you know other valuable goods to the government in exchange for these green pieces of paper or electronic version of it that they create out of thin air, as it were because they're going to come around eventually and collect. Um, and so what what Pear's saying here is, well, like one of your points, Pear, is that, okay, even on its own terms, yeah, that explains why people would be willing to trade something valuable for these tokens. It doesn't explain why that's the commonly accepted medium of exchange, right? That, and so for an analogy, for like the, the, the tokens you use at Chuck E. Cheese, I don't know if, if that's if everybody, like it's a you know, little kid's, uh, restaurant that's got video games and stuff. The, most of the machines in there, they don't take quarters. You have to go when you first go in, you go up and you buy like a, you know, a card now that this scans it. When I was younger, it was tokens like they had the, the mouse on it and stuff. And it was, you know, and that's what they use. Or if you go to a casino, you get chips. All right. The fact that lots of people like to go to casinos and get chips and that the fact that, oh, if you want to go play blackjack, you need to have the chips. That explains why people would give up something valuable to obtain chips. But it, that doesn't explain or notice it doesn't follow that when you go to the grocery store, you can pay with Chuck E. Cheese tokens or you can pay with casino chips. You can't. So um, so that is that right. So that is that your main point there? Like even on its own terms, it doesn't explain why all of our transactions in the United States are typically, you know, one half of it is a U.S. dollar. Yeah, exactly, and and that's how it started in the Twitter thread, right? And and it it is it is the claim made in in Ray's article too that 
that dollars are money because they are, as they put it, redeemed in tax payments. So uh, the government issues these, these dollars or these tokens and they buy resources with them. But the first question is, well, why would anyone accept these tokens as payment for their resources? Well, uh-huh, they say, because you have to pay taxes eventually using these tokens. And therefore, you, have to, you will accept them and you will value them because otherwise you will go to jail unless you have those tokens. But my point is exactly as you said, if the chips in a certain casino uh, are used, if say you have to have a certain number of chips at the end of the year, that doesn't mean that you're going to use those chips as payment for everything throughout the year. That doesn't follow. It just means that you will need those chips, whatever amount, at the end of the year to pay your taxes. It doesn't mean that when you and I trade, we will go, oh, well, let's just use the, the chips in the, uh, in the, the casino issues. But that doesn't follow at all. So they still have to explain why it becomes money, which is the claim they're making, but they're not actually explaining that part. They're just explaining that there might be some demand for it. Yeah, and I like to – you also made the point – so you know, one element is like the sort of geographical spread. Like, okay, just because giving the money to the U.S. Treasury, if we're talking about the United States case, but it doesn't explain why going to the grocery store. But you also make the time point that, okay, so I could see why as April 15th approaches, which is tax day for foreigners who don't know in the United States – uh, why more and more people would be scrambling to get their hands on these dollars because, uh-oh, I got you know 18 days now to come up with whatever, 30,000 U.S. dollars, so I better get cracking. But why is it that on July 1st, you know, most commerce in the United States is conducted in U.S. dollars, right? That it's, so it's, it seems like they're bootstrapping or building a lot on this, on this base that just because once a year you have to make a large transfer of these things, just like, you know, every, every year... Um, you know, farmers have a, a big harvest or something. You know, what I mean, there's lots of stuff that it's concentrated, and there's this one big event that comes a year, but that doesn't explain why wheat is used in as one side of every transaction. In the United States to say, oh well, because every harvest time there's a lot of wheat that changes hands, and so that's what you know, like that doesn't follow at all. So, so I, I liked how you were you were asking what you know why is it that it's throughout the whole year. Yeah, and they, they don't seem to have an answer to it. I mean, I'm, I'm still waiting for Kelton and Ray to respond to the article, of course, uh, but I, I haven't heard anything back. Um, but it, they, they do make up the, all these weird kind of uh, additional assumptions in order to save their thesis. And I, I don't know why. It's, it's, it, it comes across, at least from my perspective, it comes across as a, sort of a a, a desperate attempt to just have it their way and, and, and probably prop up government too. There was a guy now critiquing my article saying, that, well, it's not really taxes due on tax day. It's taxation on your income and income is earned as a flow throughout the year. So there's not actually a day where you have to pay your taxes, which, I mean, to some extent it is true that it's your income that is taxed. But it's also the case that your taxes are actually due on certain dates. I get these vouchers from my accountant, my tax accountants, uh, paying a quarterly additional taxes. They have a due date on them. I will not need dollars to pay the IRS until that due date. I don't need them between those due dates. And the same thing with tax day. So, so whether or not there is tax withholding for, for my income, it's still the case that I will demand dollars 
to pay taxes only when I actually have to pay the taxes, which is not a flow. I don't even know how how payments as a flow would 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 look like. Um, so, but this is just an, an additional thing. This is not Kelton or Ray. This is some some guy on Twitter. But but it's they add all these extra assumptions and attempts to tweak words and and sort of shoehorn things in to the whole system so that it props up the system rather than actually looking at what is what does the logic actually say and they still have no no uh, explanation for why you would go for from the specific use of a specific token to general use of the token as money and i mean that's that's what what uh, carl menger explained in his essay from the 1890s and it's still the 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 uh, explanation of where money comes from i so, so they they still have to explain exactly why it becomes money, which is uh, the whole point of my piece. That that, that it, it, Ray doesn't really get to that point; he doesn't explain it, and he has a bunch of examples, and the examples don't really fit his argument either. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think, like for example, because I could see how people might say, like, my Chuck E. Cheese example is silly because that's just like a real small component, or even casinos. That's a small, but there's plenty of things where with government operations um where they might insist on like a cashier's check or something and you know what i mean like to, to really pr- like if you got to go get get a i don't know change of name form or something like I, I just i know i've dealt with a lot of government operations where you can't even use a personal check or whatever and they don't want to take cash for i don't think because maybe they're afraid that you know the personal pocket at the, the official you're dealing with and so you need it but for, so from then, so the fact that at all sorts of government offices scattered around the country, day in and day out, there are people who go in with cashier's checks. It doesn't follow that at the grocery store, everyone's just paying with cashier's checks. That no, that you know, it's the dollar that's the basic thing. And then if you know, oh wait, next Tuesday I'm going to need to get this very specific type of asset, you turn, you know, you, you transform your more general thing into that specific claim. And so again, it's. They haven't shown, you know, it's theoretically possible that all people in the United States could use euros in day-to-day transactions. And then when it comes time to make their quarterly tax payment or to make the, you know, the April 15th settlement, they go train, exchange their euros for the, the number of U.S. dollars they need. Just like if there were a foreigner who did some business in the United States, right? I mean, maybe that's the cleanest way to do it, Pair, right? There are plenty of foreigners around the world who owe U.S. taxes because of their business activities. And it's not that those foreigners in their day-to-day lives in their home country use U.S. dollars, even though they know, oh, I'm going to have to get, you know, what they do is they use their local currency. And then when they have to make payments to the U.S. government, they exchange it for dollars. So again, um, the Ray and Kelton and all the people in this tradition, they think they're like sort of proving why people use dollars when they're, or whatever the currency is, when it's it's not. So, to, to be clear, I mean, well, I don't want to put words, words in your mouth, but what I would say, Pear, is yes, we need a broader framework to explain in general why is it that something is adopted as the you know the universally accepted medium of exchange in a certain area, and that's what the money is. And yes, yeah, certain factors like the fact that there's a a state there that insists on taxes being paid, that's you know something that could be taken into account in the story, but certainly that's not the be all end all of the story. The explanation doesn't start and end there. And just for the reasons we've given, like we can logically imagine counterexamples, um, so that that clearly can't be the full story. Yeah, exactly. And, and of course, needing dollars to pay for taxes that means that I will have some demand for dollars. 
But I have demand for all kinds of things, and that doesn't mean I'm going to use all kinds of things as money and turn to them as the medium media of exchange. So they, you're right. They, they're taking this this partial claim, this partial explanation of demand for money and making that into the explanation for what is money. And those are two separate issues. Maybe it's, it's a good point for me to sort of make this point, and I, I saw it consistent with what you were saying too, is that – we have plenty of examples of money that do are not in this model, right? So like famously in the, the POW camp in World War II where the cigarettes became a form of money, uh, more generally in prisons you know, around the world that you know, cigarettes or maybe some other types of contraband item or whatever are you know, form the, the money. And I don't just mean like in a metaphorical sense. So if people haven't read it, it the name of the article is The Economics of a POW Camp. By um, I think his name was Radford. Was it was, so? It was an economist by trade who then was you know serving in the military in World War II for the Allies, and I don't know if he got shot down or something, but got captured, and then I think was in a I think it was a German POW camp, and so as a trained economist, he was able to document this. But it was you know like like goods would be would because the the Red Cross or somebody would give ration packages, and so people the prisoners would trade them. For you know, and, and there would be like chalkboards where they would have prices of stuff, and it would be quoted in, in numbers of cigarettes. By which they actually meant the tobacco that would be in a cigarette, you know, because you otherwise you could clip it and stuff like that. So they meant in a regular cigarette how much tobacco would be rolled into that thing. That's what they meant by one cigarette, you know, in terms of the money. And it was you know, and there was inflation. There was you know, when when the when the care packages would come in and everyone had a bunch of cigarettes, like, but then they would smoke them down and, and prices would fluctuate. So it was really. Cigarettes were the money, like for real, not just as an analogy. And clearly that wasn't because of taxes being collected in cigarettes. So – and then historically, obviously gold and silver emerged as the you know decentralized voluntary market money. And that wasn't because someone somewhere was demanding payment in terms of gold and silver. So clearly in general, you don't need this mechanism to explain it. And so uh, you know, I guess that's part of the, the point that – we as Austrians are making is that they're they're ignoring all these counterexamples. Like so, you know, it really it's it's not a broad framework that explains in general where does money come from and what is money. Yeah, and I think they would actually reject those counterexamples too because they they're really just looking at government money. So with the cigarettes or with the gold or whatever, that that's a commodity money. And they would say, well, the world is different today. Today it's the government's money and whatever the government says is money, which has no other uses whatsoever. Even Kelton said in, in the Twitter exchange that I had with her that, well, it's government's worthless money or word because had, had there not been taxation or had you not been uh, required to use those uh, for, for, for tax payments, you would not find them valuable at all. So that's the only reason is the implication that you would accept uh, dollars because you have to pay the taxes. And therefore, then magically you will just turn around and use dollars for everything in, in trade throughout the year. So I, I think they would say that, well, yeah, that, that's commodity money and that's a completely different beast. What we're dealing with today is a government with fiat money and, and, uh, and therefore it's, it's all very different. And they, they would even say, I mean, against the, the commodity money uh, examples, what Ray actually claims is that, well, government creates money, it spends it into the economies, it spends it into existence, one of those slogans they use, uh, by buying resources and therefore the money are, are around. And when you pay your taxes, the government 
will basically uh, they will redeem you from your tax liability and destroy the dollars. And I, and I, Ray even he, he puts this in in a way that I think is inappropriate for for a scholarly article. But but what he says is, and, and I quote. Note that tax payment redeems both taxpayer and sovereign. Isn't that nice? The sovereign's currency is burned and the taxpayer can burn her tax bill. Hallelujah. And hallelujah is his word in the article <laughs> with, with yeah, ex- exclamation people, mark. It's not that – yeah, it's not that Pear is being sarcastic, folks. That's literally the quotation. Yeah, that's from his article. So, so they do claim that the government creates the money into existence or spends it into existence and then that the dollars – go away or they burn them. They don't have to do that with digital money, of course, but they they destroy the dollars when you pay your taxes. I'm not sure that's necessarily accurate, uh, but that's the claim they make and that's the claim that Ray makes when he tried to il- illustrate the point using uh, paper currency used in colonial America, for instance. But even, even there, his example doesn't make any sense. Uh, so, so it he fa- really fails to make make the point that he's, he claims that he's making. Well, right. And it's – yeah. So again, there's a certain logic to it that if, if you were just imagining a system, you know, drawing it up from scratch and that, you know, time begins at time zero and now there's there, – we go from a position where there's no money and now we have to get everybody in the community to hold something. Let's call it the U.S. dollar is money. How are we going to get it into their hands? Well, we could just hand it out, but let's not do that. That's let's spend it into existence. You know, have the government get some resources, you know, in exchange for its sovereign power and blah blah blah. And then that's how the people get the money in the first place. Is these dollars are created? You know, at time zero, there's zero dollars, and now at time one, there's four trillion dollars that the government deficits spent into existence, right? Because there's no tax revenue at time one because there's no. How could anyone? They have no dollars. So clearly spending by the government has to precede taxation in, in their framework and then, oh, yeah, so that people get the money from that first round of spending and now they can pay taxes back. And then you can see how on net if the government runs a surplus, the number of dollars has to shrink because if all the dollars are, you know, is the, is the difference that if the, you know, if the government – if people pay in a, a trillion dollars in taxes and the government only spends $800 billion, that two hundred billion, like you said, they could just burn it or put it in a drawer or whatever. Or if it's digital, you know, it just kind of disappears. And so there's a sense in which up oh, two hundred billion dollars just disappeared. And so clearly, the private sector now lost some financial assets, right? That like, and I've seen that. That's how these MMT people think about it. So there's a certain inner consistency with that. The only problem is that's historically not what happened. It wasn't the case that there was a period. When there were zero dollar bills and then the next period the government came in and spent all this fiat money into existence, that wasn't what happened. Historically, you know, the dollar was defined as a certain amount of grams of gold or silver and that's why people accepted it because the gold and silver had independently arisen as the market's choice of money. And then over time, as everybody, you know, listening to this podcast, I'm sure knows, the government just came in and unilaterally, you know, started altering the deal and say, no, actually, it's not worth as much now. And then finally, you know, Richard Nixon was the final nail in the coffin. And so there had to be that whole history of people accepting the dollar because it was defined in terms of gold and silver. So it was like piggybacking on the valuation that way. And then even now, again, it's it's all consistent with the Austrian view of what makes something money. And, you, you know, you said this in your paper, pair that it was ultimately why do people 
accept dollars in trade right now is because they forecast it'll have purchasing power tomorrow. And and how did we get to this point? It wasn't because of the mechanisms Ray and Kelton said. It was because of that link with gold and silver historically. So yeah, exactly. I get it's yep. it's just weird, even on their own term, when they're saying this is how money has to come into existence, except for the actual monies in existence all around the world. Yeah, and it, I mean the implication of what they're saying is that while the dollar was worthless and wouldn't have been used as currency before 1913 because there was no income tax, right? But yeah, but that's that's not true, obviously. And and Ray completely skips over these sort of things too. But rather, the the dollar as the name of the money was was co opted and and stolen basically from from the economy by the government step by step. So just like you said, first it was regulated with it it it, it was this much gold or silver or whatever, and but then it was less because the government just cut down on the actual value and they, they wanted to create more more bills. And then eventually there was no gold backing the dollar at all, but of course people kept on using it. But there's there's an inertia there too, right? That they because everybody knew that everybody was expecting and 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 would ex- accept dollars in payment backed by gold. The next day when they were not backed by gold, they still expected everybody to accept dollars in payment, so they would continue using dollars as payment. And and I mean that's that's the Austrian argument, right? That because you expect it to be the continue to be money because it is money already well that's that's why you would treat it as money it's not the case that that well unless the government uh, taxes you it has no value whatsoever if you would re- create a new type of money in in some society today with which is in a in a government controlled economy then perhaps there might be something to the um to the mmt story but I, I still, it still lacks that step from this specific purpose of the token to why you would use it as money. They still don't explain that. So it's, I mean, it's a, it's an argument that has so many big holes in it, and they're not tiny holes. They're not like, um, it's not hair splitting at all. It's, it's the, the core component of their argument is missing, uh, and they're just extrapolating from from some observations that are taking sort of without context uh, that, that makes the, the argument really weird. And I guess, I guess that's, that's how we should interpret or, or understand the examples he, that Ray uses in the piece too. I mean, when he talks about the colonial dollar, how that was a paper currency side by side with the, the British uh, species, uh, uh, gold and silver, and the colonial government issued these paper dollars, not backed by anything, but say, but, but they still uh, spent it in the economy and people, for some reason, they gave up resources for these, these, these uh, dollars. And Ray claims, well, that's because uh, the colonial government required payment of taxes in those uh, newly minted or, or printed rather dollars. But then in his own example, he says, well, the, the colonial government, yeah, they just they destroyed these bills or could destroy them when they were were used to uh, pay taxes or redeemed in taxes, as he, as he puts it. But yeah, they accepted specie too to pay taxes. Well, okay, but didn't you just say that because you have to pay taxes using this paper currency, that's why the paper currency has value and is money? But now you're saying that well, you didn't actually have to use it, but it's still money. 
Well, that just raises a, a bunch of questions about his own argument and how to understand this paper currency. What was it really? And one, one of the issues that I bring up there is, is, well, if it's only usable in the beginning to pay taxes, why would someone part with their resources for this token that you can use in the future to pay taxes, but you don't have to use that token? Well, from a public choice perspective, that might be that, well, you might be a crony pretty much, so you're doing your, your, your pals in government a favor by accepting their currency and therefore you expect to get a favor in return. I mean, otherwise, why would you ex accept these tokens that no one is using over specie? There has to be something else involved because you're just losing when you're selling your resources for these tokens. So you're saying, so like imagine it's the original situation and um, the you know, people use, they, they call it dollars, but meaning a dollar that's backed up by gold or, you know, silver or that is gold. That's the thing too. Like under, like old school originally, it wasn't even that the U.S. government issued dollar bills with the pledge of redeeming them. No, it was like the dollar was defined as a certain amount of, you know, weight and gold and silver. So like it really was just so, so far removed from how we even think about it. Like even sometimes I slip and say things that actually isn't accurate. Um, and so then the the idea is the government then is going to say, oh, we're going to, um, you know, you, you stole your taxes denominated in dollars and you can pay us in the full body gold and silver, you know, what like a, like a, a coin that says 25 US dollars, a gold coin or something, or, or 20, I should say, a gold eagle coin. If Like let's say your tax bill is 20 or... This this paper that we printed up um, to you know, fund the Revolutionary War or whatever the heck we're doing, you know, you can pay with that. And from the U.S. government's perspective, they're interchangeable. Um, but I think what you're saying is is still like, in general, if you're in the community and someone wants to pay you, and they're either going to give you the full-bodied coin that's got gold in it, or this paper that's intrinsically worthless, just because there's one entity out there in the economy that's willing to accept them at par, but nobody else, like that doesn't pin down that everybody accepts them at par. Like you would kind of think in general, wouldn't most people prefer to get the thing with the gold or the silver in it rather than, you know, wouldn't it, it best to trade it at a discount is, is what you would kind of expect from just that one particular fact of the world. Yeah, exactly. They would be traded at a discount because they have one use really that you can count on that is paying your taxes. But other people would probably prefer, prefer to be paid in gold and silver rather than this mm. token, which then might be, I mean, since the government would treat them and, and legally probably mandate that they are, are exactly the same, then Gresham's law would apply, I suppose, right? That, that bad money outcompetes good money, or rather that what is uh, artificially overvalued, which is the paper, is going to be used in circulation because people want to get rid of it. They would rather have the specie, which is artificially undervalued. So they would keep whatever gold and silver coins they get and use the paper currency to, uh, for trade instead because you want to get rid of it because you don't know if, if it's going to actually uh, retain its value over time. And you just need a little bit maybe at some point to pay taxes anyway. But that's still, even that argument, it, it requires that it's already in circulation. It, it doesn't explain yeah. the, the first transaction still. Right. And also, and, I, and you get into this in the paper, so I, I wanted to make sure we hit this point. 
I think there's some confusion even among like hard money types about what Gresham's law is actually. So everyone thinks of Gresham's law as being to say that bad money drives out good. And yet, and yes, the historically, like the kind of examples, like in the U.S., there was the bimetallism period, and um, you know the dollar would be defined as a certain amount of gold or silver, and then depending, and when they originally, uh, you know, chose that balance, it was very close to the actual market ratio of those two, and what the people who set that system up, I think, what they thought they were doing was to facilitate that. Oh yeah, you can pay in either gold or silver; it's fine. But then what would happen in practice is when the market, uh, you know, price of gold versus silver moved one way or the other, clearly, you know, it was, quote, cheaper to pay either in gold or in silver versions. And so then that's what would happen. So anybody who had – who owed somebody, you know, $10 would pay with coins that were either silver or gold depending on what was, you know, overvalued at that moment given what the legal definitions were. But th- but there, like you're like you're saying, pair the the issue is because of legal tender laws that you know you were compelled. Like if if the if the, if the debts were denominated in this thing, in these units called U.S. dollars, and then I have a silver coin that's stamped one U.S. dollar, even though in terms of market value, that's that's not as much as a gold dollar would would be. Then I can still satisfy my debt legally. I can pay the you know the the person that I owe the dollar to. He's not legally allowed to say, no, no, you can't pay me with that silver dollar. I want a gold dollar. Or, you know, if you owe me 20, then give me a gold eagle that's got a $20 stamped on it. That you, you, no, you are legally allowed to satisfy extinguished debts with these things. So that's the critical element. Because if you weren't allowed to do that, then I think you would have the, the par, you know what I mean? That depending on the way the movement of the exchange rates between gold and silver, like in the bullion market, then, yeah, a debt denominated one way or the other, people would say, oh, if you're paying me in gold dollars, well, then, you know, we'll multiply what you owe me by 0.98, whereas if you're paying me in silver, then it's, you know what I mean? So, like, that's how they would handle it, but you weren't legally allowed to do that. So it wasn't merely the fact that the government collected taxes and was willing to accept gold and silver coins according to this ratio, but the fact that they were imposing on the community debts denominated in this thing called the U.S. dollar also, you know, and, and so that's where Gresham, that was my long-winded way of saying that's where Gresham's law comes. Like with cryptocurrency, it's not that, oh, people would like to hold Bitcoin because it's a better type of cryptocurrency. But, you know, Gresham's law, bad bad money drives out good. And so that's why, you know, some coin, some altcoin that everyone agrees is a scam, we're all just using that for our, our transactions. Well, no, just nobody would use it, period. You can't compel someone to accept it in that realm of totally voluntary transactions, whereas in the historical period where Gresham's law was derived and, you know, codified, it was because there were, among other things, legal tender laws that made people have to accept payment in a type of money that actually was being overvalued at that point. Yeah, and you would you would expect that the MMTers, I mean, modern monetary theorists, would, would know something about legal tender, tender laws and these sort of mandates from the government and also the, the history of money where it comes from and that it was gold and, and silver and things like that. But they completely skip this point. And to them, the argument is solely that, well, it's tax uh, liabilities that not only gives money value, quote unquote, or de- that we demand it to some extent, but rather that we're going to use it for everything always. They just completely skip over the legal tender laws and and the tradition or, or where it comes from, the expectations of people uh, to use the dollar as money and all of those things. 
there might be some MMT or somewhere who who considers taxation to be only the primary driver of it and not the only one, but they they typically talk about it as the only one, and that doesn't make any sense because it's it's I I really doubt that it is even the primary one. Mm-hmm. Well, what's interesting? It's not just I should mention it's not just MMT people. I saw Paul Krugman do it. Maybe you saw this pair of. A couple of years ago, well, at this point, maybe like five years ago, he was – I don't remember what the – I think it was because he was talking about Bitcoin. I think it was back when he was like – you know, he had these alternating periods where he would keep hating on Bitcoin. He had an article one time called Bitcoin is Evil. Like that's literally the, the title he chose. And he was trying to explain why Bitcoin would never be a money. And part and he – you know, one of his things was, oh, because it doesn't – you know, it's intrinsically useless. And then he caught himself and said, whereas with, you know – the U.S. dollar, yeah, you can't eat it or you can't build a car with the dollar, but you use it to pay taxes. And so he said, so ultimately the reason the dollar has value is because of men with guns. Like he actually said that and he thought he was being real, you know, real politique or something when it was just like, again, just kind of betraying the the status worldview. And like, I, you know, certain people, like I think they just get this thrill to know that there's these, you know, institutions that have such power. Um you know, like to me, it's psychological. I'm just trying to explain it. Like, why would you just like with the trillion dollar platinum coin? Why are people just so enthralled with that? I think for some people, it's just like the idea they can just take a disc and just stamp one trillion dollars on it. Like, that's just like it excites them or something. But, um, but even with the convert, you know, the train of thought we just went through, I, just, I don't want to mislead people. I'm not saying, oh, so yeah, the government, if it had tax power and then legal tender power, it could just make anything the money. No, it's. The, the, the people had to already, you know, the Americans already had to have been using dollars and they were like that even it was like a Spanish term or, you know, a coin. Like that's why the original colonists, in addition to having British pounds and so forth, they were using the I think it was a, it was like the Thaler or something. And then they it just the way they spoke, it just it turned into be calling it a dollar. And so that's where it came from. And then they would, the, you know, the, the, it was just codified with the legal tender stuff. So, I mean. It had to have already been the case that in common practice, the community's debts were denominated in this thing called dollars. It's not that you just go into a community from scratch, or at least that's not what happened for the U.S. So I, I don't – in Ray's paper, I don't know if he gets into – there's – I've seen the MMT people point to like some British colony somewhere. You know, the administrator came in and wanted the the, the locals to use something as the, as the money, and so they imposed a head tax in it or something. So yeah, in, in in theory, you could come up maybe with some examples where even Pear and I would agree. Okay, for that one historical episode, yep, to explain. But even there, it's the 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 Austrian the Mengarian framework of money is a commonly accepted medium of exchange, and then historically, in that one instance, the way you achieved that was because of blah blah blah. But just to say in general, the reason things are money is because of taxation. That's just no. That's just not right historically. That's not how the euro. That's not how the dollar. That's not how the yen came to be money for those areas. That's just not what happened. Yeah, and history doesn't seem to bother MMTers at all. I mean, uh, uh, Ray has this this passage where he quickly moves ahead and he says, "Well, uh, throughout history, it always worked this way that." That we've had government issue money, uh, and and uh, and 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 we don't need a middleman like the the Federal Reserve. The Treasury can just do it instead of having this wasteful procedure, pretty much, uh, with with a a central bank and the Treasury. The Treasury can just do it right away because what we need is for the government to spend money into existence, and it, it's not 
true. It, it hasn't wasn't the case that the government has always issued money. <laughs> money has been certain things with, with or without the government's involvement, and it's been commodities. But he just completely skips that point and just pretends that it never happened, and and therefore that that big void is apparently a, a, a rationale for accepting his argument, even though even the examples it chooses are not actually in line with his own argument, which is hilarious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and to go back, to you, you you had a, a you, you know, kind of said it real fast, but you said something like, according to their worldview, you would think before the the federal income tax was established in 1913 that that you know dollars either didn't exist or must not have had much purchasing power. Like you know, prices quoted in U.S. dollars must have been really high before 1913. And then once Americans had to pay taxes in dollars, the demand for dollars went way up, and then you would see prices quoted in dollars come way down. And no, it's actually the opposite. And, and I can do the you know the thought experiment the other way. When I have been writing on this topic for a while, one of my go-to examples or, or, or arguments is to say, all right, let's throw you know put aside all the historical objections and the fact that it seems like they're at best coming up with a a description of one way that something might become the money as opposed to just, you know, a, a general framework that's true for all cases. Put all that aside. Just when we want to say, is it the, is it plausible or is it useful to think about the tax power as being something intrinsically tied to the value of the money? Right now, if the United States, they cut income taxes or let's say all taxes in half across the board, what would that do to the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar? So from the MMT perspective, you would think if the if if the dollar's value is being propped up by the you know people scrambling to get these things to go pay their taxes, you would think if taxes got cut in half across the board, that means prices would double. But no, the dollar would strengthen. Investors around the world would rush to get into dollar-denominated assets if the tax rate on them got cut in half. And so you would actually see the dollar strengthen against other currencies. And so at the very least, you know, imports from other countries would get cheaper. So if anything, and, and this isn't hypothetical, that happened in the Reagan year administration. You know, when they had the big tax cuts in the early 80s, you saw the dollar strengthen a lot against other currencies such that they deliberately had to go in and weaken it, you know, like in around 85 or something. I'm getting my timeline a little off. But the dollar strengthened very sharply against other currencies after the Reagan administration, you know, cut income tax 25% across the board. So again, just like it's historically wrong. It doesn't fit in with the general theory of value and just in terms of just even getting the direction right for major changes in the dial. No, if you lowered taxes, other things equal, that would make the currency strengthen. And so how does that at all fit in with the MMT worldview? Right. And I, I, th- I think it, at the core, it's really a theory or a, an explanation perhaps or a story uh, produced with one purpose and it's to prop up government and, and make government glorious and allow for government to do whatever it wants, right? Because the argument is always that, well, the government has to step ahead and create all this money, like in Kelton's cl- case, that entrepreneurs can't make profits were it not for government spending. So then if the more government spends, the more profit they can make. And therefore, we would have more entrepreneurship and we would have more growth and we would have a, a better society overall. So government should spend as much as possible, but it could lead to uh, inflation, they say. And therefore, they should use taxation to to uh, adjust 
adjust taxation rates so that you don't get inflation. So the point is for government to spend as much money as possible into existence to create growth. But when you start get, getting a little bit of inflation, you should raise tax rates because if you raise tax rates and the only, the, mon- the value of the currency is your tax liability, well, then if you raise the tax rates, the value of the money will go up, uh, which means if the purchasing power of money goes up, well, that means the prices must fall, right? So like you said, there's some, in, some internal semi-consistency to the argument. It's just that everything is backward. Right, yeah. I, I think at best, all you could do is it would explain why there was some purchase. So here I'm, I'm making like a separate argument. At best, all it would do is explain why the purchasing power of this particular commodity or asset isn't zero. That's really what they're explaining. But in terms of explaining anything beyond that, no. So for example, like, yeah, if the U.S. government said every April 15th, everyone has to give us $1,000, you know, for every, you know, for every member of your household, you have to give us $1,000 per head or else we just shoot you all. That would indeed explain why people would scramble and make sure that come April 15th, they had $1,000 per person. It wouldn't explain, though, the purchasing power of that in the marketplace. That that would be consistent with the average wage rate being $1 an hour and people have to work 1,000 hours to get you know $1,000 or with the wage rate being $1,000 an hour. And everyone has to go work that one hour to get the 1,000 and then they put it you know in a, in a vault in their house so that when April 15th comes, they go ahead and you, you see what I mean? And, and what would affect that will be things like, well, what if there was, you know, a quadrillion dollars floating around? It would be very easy for each person to come up with a thousand per head and they probably wouldn't have to do much work. So again, that it really, this, this idea, like it, it, all it really does is just pin down that, yeah, the purchasing power isn't zero, but beyond that to say anything about it, you need to use the general framework of economics. And so why not just use that for all of it? And, you know, at best plug in this is like one little curiosity, just like, you know, to say, oh, how come these chips are valuable, these these casino chips? And why did they go up in value? Well, because more people want to start gambling. But you wouldn't build a whole theory of of monetary value around the existence of casinos. That would be crazy. Right. But I think they they prefer to use economic theory very selectively. Because they want the theory to lead in a certain direction. They don't want the theory to be just theory, explain something. They want it to support certain policies, I think. Because in, in my discussions with MMTers, and granted this is not the, the MMT scholars, but people online who are basically just repeating the slogans, but they are, are loud critics of, of, of thinking that money, money supply has anything to do with uh, inflation. Or, or price levels. So they critique that. And what they claim is that, well, prices are set by supply and demand in money. But there's no supply and demand for money. That doesn't, doesn't, doesn't really register with them at all. So they say, well, if, there's, if, if they tamper with money and buy resources and so forth, the prices are still set, supply and demand, but in money as a as a, an accounting unit, but people do not have demand for money or, or re- really supply money into the marketplace either. So they, they can't use it on both sides as a true economists would, of course, because they would apply the same tools to both sides because 
<laughs> Otherwise, it, it, it falters. Uh, instead, they use economic theory where, where it fits their narrative, and then they reject it anywhere else so that they can get to whatever their their conclusion is, which, which seems to be, to me, that government needs to do a lot of stuff. And they even say things, and I, I, I'm paraphrasing, might be quoting Kelton, saying that, look at all this stuff we could have if government just realized that they don't have to bother with, uh, with paying the debt or, or, or bother with taxation. They could just spend money into existence. We could have free health care. We could have free education. We could have all of those things. Because if, money, if government just buys those things in the marketplace, spending new money into existence, then we could get all this free stuff. And it would also mean that entrepreneurs can make more profits because there is more money for them to make profits and they would sell those resources to the government. And you would also take it another step, which uh, Warren Mosler does when he talks about uh, hyperinflation, where he claims that, well, hyperinflation um, – is because government chose to pay too high prices for resources. So had government just not paid prices high enough, there would have been no hyperinflation. So it was really a government error. Which is which is a <laughs> this it's a it's a very it's an interesting argument, but it really has no relevance at all in reality. I think. That's the, that's the Weimar Republic, by the way, where he says that the, looking right. at those numbers, that the only reason they they suffered from from uh, hyperinflation was that the government unwisely chose to pay t- too high prices for the resources. They should have just paid lower prices. Of course, that's completely denying why anyone would buy or sell things, right? But they, they well, well, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, like, yeah, there's a certain logic. And if what he means – because for him, obviously, when the government buys something, it creates the money in the act of buying it. So if all he's merely saying is if the government printed less money in interwar Germany, then prices wouldn't have been as high, quoted in Marx. Well, well yeah, but you're right. Like it, it wouldn't really solve the problem just to go to the German government at the time and say, hey, just instead of paying the, you know, the, the price that they're asking for, just, just pay half of that because then the sellers would say, well, no, we'll sell it to somebody else because you've already dumped so many marks into the economy that – we can afford that. You know, this is now the going market price of this, you know, loaf of bread or whatever. Right. The government um, would get zero resources if they offered below market prices, which is obvious for an economist, right? That if they offered such low prices, well, then anybody, everybody would sell everything to someone else or not sell at all because it, it, it would be a yeah. loss to sell it. But to him, it was simply that no government paid too high prices and therefore – and I think in, from, from their perspective – if I may sort of play uh, the, the psychology game a little bit and place myself in their shoes, I think it might make sense to them if you always and at every time place government first. So government must create everything. Government, government is what creates the currency. Government is what creates uh, the economy. Government is what provides the means for entrepreneurs to make profits and so forth. So there's no economy in itself. All is because of government's actions. And if that is your perspective, then you can sort of make more sense of their claims. It still doesn't really fit, at least from my perspective. But, but I, I can sort of make sense of, of that argument about the hyperinflation too, that, that well, government should have just paid lower prices because then prices wouldn't have been able to go up as much 
and therefore people would have accepted the currency, right? It doesn't make mm -hmm. any sense at all if you know any economics. But but if, if you start with the government in every thought you have, then, then I suppose it does make some sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just looking at the clock here. Maybe we can just talk one, about one more topic briefly. Can you, Per, get into this, the, the, the cloakroom analogy that I saw? I don't know if it was Ray's analogy or he was quoting somebody else, but can you just talk a bit about that? Because it was very similar. I'll let you set that up because it was similar to something that M Mosler said when I, you know, I debated him at, at Columbia one time. And, uh, but, go, but go ahead. Yeah, he uses a, a, an old example from, oh, goodness, what is his name? Knapp, I think. Uh, oh, right, from his state theory of money? Yes, exactly, where he says that, well, money really functions as the token used in a cloakroom, in a theater or whatever, that you, you basically you turn in your coat and you get a, a token, and the token is worth a, 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 your, your coat. <clears throat> and then you need the coat, the token in order to get your, your coat back. Um, but then imagine if you can't leave the theater without having such a token. Well, that would create a market for tokens. And then, of course, assuming that all coats are the same, it, a coat is a coat and not your coat. So they're interchangeable. Then in order to leave the theater, you would need to get your hands on a token. And then, of course, tokens would be traded by everyone and therefore the token would be money. So, the, But it's, a, it's an analogy for maybe how government money is a token, but I'm not sure it explains anything else, really. Uh, of course, the, the, the cloakroom uh, attendant could, could, could produce a lot of more tokens or to give tokens to his friends or say, well, now I require two tokens in order to exit the theater or whatever, and thereby you can change people's behavior. But it's, it's sort of a highly central planning uh, perspective on, on, on what is an economy. And, and it has nothing really to do with the creation of value or work or anything like that that we would generally see as the economy. Yeah, it's yeah. Moser said a similar thing. So we, again, we were, at, I think it was at Columbia, and there was I don't know fifty people in the crowd that showed up to watch this debate, and that was one of his his thought experiments when he was trying to explain to them like how how the government and taxation gives value to the currency. And he was saying, like, imagine, you know, when this d debate is over, if I, you know, I warn Moser, go stand outside the door. And when people are walking out, unless they um, had these slips of paper that I write, you know, Mosler on it, I shoot him with a gun. And like the only way you can get out of here alive is if you have these slips of paper. And then um, how do you get these slips of paper is I will say to you, well, I want you to do chores for me. Like I want you to, you know cut the lawn or I want you to do that. I forget what he did because, you know, we're in the in the theater. So how, how are you going to get up? But it was something where like you had to do something valuable that Warren Mosler wanted. And then he would give you one of these slips of paper that then he would collect from you as you left the thing. Otherwise he would shoot you. Right. And he was explaining that, you know, and so, um, you know, and I, and I, and then in my response, you know, I just pointed out sort of like the violence inherent in that. And like, you know, even on his own terms, that's kind of a creepy system and that, that should bother us that that's apparently what the underpinning of the global economy is. And the MMT people in the comments, like on the YouTube version of that debate, we're all just, oh, Murphy's just got his quantum. Like, ooh, this is, he doesn't like it, but this is the way the world works. But so again, it's a two-pronged thing. Like as you and I pointed out here, like no, historically, that's not where any major currency came from. Like we can trace it back to, it was, they were tied to gold and silver eventually, or ultimately the, when you push it back. 
but also again, like just that's a um, again a, a creepy. So like it's as if if Bitcoin or other things become more widely accepted, it's not because people are pointing guns and saying you know you have to do such and such for me. So it, it's just a again, it's just a. I think it's it's wrong, but also just creepy. Like it just on the face of it, uh, these examples that just come to your mind. And he was, and he was very pleased with himself with that example, like to show uh, this is the essence of it. It's me standing there with a gun, and that's why you want to get these pieces of paper that we all agree are intrinsically worthless to you. Well, I mean, he explained what government is. So I mean, in that sense, it's correct. Mm-hmm. It's just that he didn't explain what the economy is, and he didn't explain what money right. is either. So it's missing the point, but. You're right that MMTers are – they're very prone to always refer to some observation of, of, of what government money is like or what government is like. And they don't really mind talking about the government as violence either even though they think that that violence is a necessary precondition for any economy or any growth or any prosperity. Uh, so, But they take these singular separate observations that are usually without any context, definitely without any history – and then they prop them up with a bunch of deputies and they, they call it a theory. And, and, and that's, that's all there is. And, and so that, that's why I, I do not expect neither Kelton nor Ray to in any sense comment on my article because I take Ray's arguments that were championed by Kelton and I, I just show, show where the holes are just like she instructed me. And she said, I'll wait and then use citations and everything. Well, I mean – I'm sure she's still waiting, even though I've I sent the piece to her and and pinged her on Twitter and everything like that. But I don't think she's going to respond because because they don't didn't really have a response other than just just showering uh, me and everybody else with more deepities that don't make any sense. Yeah, you'll be whether by her or her disciples, you'll be lectured that oh, you obviously don't understand you know the first thing that's that's or what I get a lot is, oh yeah, that's gold standard thinking, or you're thinking like a household, you got to think like a government, any of that kind of stuff where, um, you know, accusing you of not understanding their sophisticated argument, or like I said, when I was making some objections to Mosler's analogy of him, you know, using at gunpoint, people just, oh, but Murphy just, he doesn't like it, it offends his sensibility, he thinks it's involuntary, but that's the way the world works, Murphy, you know, that kind of thing. Okay, well, I think that's probably a good uh, point to, to wrap up. Uh, so, Pear, thank you for joining us, and we hope that maybe Stephanie Kelton will respond to you. It'd be curious to see what she says, because, yeah, I don't, I think I have a decent mental model of the MMT framework, but I don't know exactly how she would respond to some of your points, so I'd be curious uh, to see that. So, so, thanks so much for joining us. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.